Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord for those of you who are here, those online. Let's stand and let's uh, begin our time of worship together and sing together the goodness of God today. Come all you weary, come all you thirsty, come to the well that never runs dry. Drink of the water, come and thirst no table he will satisfy taste of his goodness find what you're looking for for God's is waiting there with open arms for God so be seated. 
Well, good morning, Pitts Baptist Church. Are you happy to be in the house of the Lord? Amen. Thank you for being with us this morning. Uh, if you're meeting with us online, thank you so much for choosing to worship with us. I cannot tell you folks how good it is to be back with my church family. I want to say to you guys, and I, yeah. I cannot tell you uh, how thankful Sherry and I are to feel the prayers of a church family, to have things show up on our doorstep that we needed. Uh, toilet paper. <laughs> Who knew? It showed up, and we needed it. So thank you. <laughs> Food, drinks, just all the encouraging cards, texts, emails. Thank you. Um, I love you. So anyway, we want to welcome you. If you're a guest of ours this morning, there's a care card that's located in the pew rack in front of you. Take a moment to fill that in. We would like to have a record of you being here. As you leave this morning, there are boxes on the round tables. You can place those there. On the back of the care card, uh, we ask you to please fill in any prayer requests, and that's for everyone. We as a staff want to pray for you, know what's going on in your life, so please take a moment to fill that in. We would love to hear from you and be praying for you. So thank you for being here. Don't forget about today, a couple of announcements. Uh, keyboards and praise today, a piano, piano and organ concert today here in the Worship Center at 4 o'clock. Uh, ladies, you have a movie night coming up on Thursday, August 26th at 6.30. That's for 6th graders and up. Today's the last day to sign up for that. Go by the Info Center. It's $5. That includes some of your food and some of the things going on that night. Also, ladies, there's an Even If conference coming up, simulcast conference on Saturday, September 18th. That begins at 9 in the morning. It is $20, and it's for 6th graders and up. But that includes your Chick-fil-A box lunch uh, in that cost also. So please go by and fill out and get signed up for that. Men, our Be Strong Men's Conference is September 24th through the 26th at Snowbird. The total cost is $125. That's for ninth graders and up. Uh, next Sunday is the deadline, so please go by. There's a sign-up sheet at the info desk. Uh, you can sign up for that. It is a $50 deposit. To hold your spot, you can give that to me uh, and make sure that you're on the list. Uh, there's also a teacher's slate on the tables. Uh, we will vote on that next week. And just thank you to all of you who stepped up to fill some of the vacancies we've had. You know, it's been, uh, I haven't been here since. We had one of our aces, one of our aces uh, to go home to be with the Lord and Bart Deese. Michelle, I know you're here. We're praying for you too and your family. But for our folks to step up, to fill those vacancies, thank you. We will have a stand-up meeting next week right after worship uh, just to make sure we're all on the same page down in the core gym. So if you can come be a part of that, uh, we would greatly appreciate that. Also, I just need to give you a quick update. We have two missionaries that we recently have commissioned from our church. Uh, in Katie and Brandon, and I'll leave it at first name only. Uh, they are in no imminent danger. Uh, we've checked with both of them, talked with parents this morning. 
by way of email with Brandon, they are in no imminent danger of what's going on right now in Afghanistan. Folks, we need to be praying. We need to be praying for Afghanistan right now. You know, it's amazing. Last week, I was frustrated. I was saying, where's the United States? I don't want to get political. But here, here's what the Lord said to me. Kevin, I have a host of angels that I can deploy at any moment that no AK-47, no tank, no bomb, no gun can prevail against. One angel in the Old Testament went in and obliterated an army that was against God's anointed. It's the same God, folks. It's the same God. We need to be praying that God will deploy his angels to cover his anointed. I want to read an article to you from the Gospel Coalition, just a section. It's about a retreat of Christians and pastors in Afghanistan. What they said, you can go read the article at the Gospel Coalition. It said, we ended our retreat time with a synopsis of David Platt's admonition at a secret church gathering on the cross and suffering. It says this, we must face suffering with a higher view of God. We must face suffering with a humble view of ourselves and other people. Remember that suffering and evil exist to exalt the glory of God's grace as demonstrated through suffering of Jesus for the salvation of all. God ordains suffering for Christians in different ways for different purposes and through different means. Among other reasons, he leads us into suffering to refine our faith, to show his glory, and to teach us to depend on him. Finally, our good and merciful Father leads his people into the turbulent waters of suffering as part of the orchestration of his plan to complete the Great Commission. Our song leader chose the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and as we sang the final verse, an Afghan brother came and whispered in my ear, Ashrif Ghani, Afghanistan's president, just resigned. The Taliban are now in control. And we sang, let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen? I want to read one verse, and I'm going to pray. It's John 16, verse 33, the words of Jesus. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Take a moment where you're seated, to pray silently, and I'm going to pray out loud. Oh, holy God, we come to you this morning. We pray for the things that are going on around this world right now. They're troubling to us, God. But as believers, we have to, we must trust in your sovereignty. 
God, you are seated on the throne as King of kings and Lord of lords. None of this surprises you. So God, we lean in on you. And God, we ask as an army on our knees to God, please protect those that are in harm's way, God. For our military, for our leaders, as they make decisions. We have an admiral from our church in Miriam Lafferty right now who is dealing with part of this, God. We pray that you give her wisdom. Give our government and our military divine wisdom, God. We'll wait to hear about the stories of your holy angels who are protecting those over there, God. Thank you for all you do for us. Thank you for allowing us to face tribulation that refines our faith. God, I pray for this service this morning that you would give Pastor Scott a special anointing today that you would speak through the words that he says through the scriptures that he reads through the songs that jonathan leads us in god that we would worship you we would praise you today that we would be encouraged that god you are in control god help us to think about that this entire day help us to make adjustments in our life where we need to we ask all of these things and all of god's people said Amen.
Hear the words of praise to our sovereign God Almighty from Psalm 9. I will praise you, O Lord. With all my heart, I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will govern the peoples with justice. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name will trust in you. You, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord, enthroned in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. Sing praise to the Lord. We will sing praise to the Lord. Yeah. 
resurrection and he's coming back again let the lost be found let the dead be raised in the here and now let love invade let the church live loud our god will say we believe we believe and the gates of hell will not prevail for the power of god has torn the veil for we know we believe, we believe, we believe in God the Father. We believe in the crucifixion. We believe that He conquered death. We believe in the and he's coming back, he's coming back again. He's coming back again. We believe, we
all my life you have been faithful. And all my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, oh, I will sing of the goodness of Jonathan, take your Bibles out, please. Matthew 24 today. You know, uh, the past two weeks, you got out early. <laughs> Not so today. You need your Bibles today, okay? People ask today, maybe more than at any other time in my lifetime or in my ministry, Pastor, don't you think that the return of Christ must be near? I mean, Pastor, we have things like COVID going on. We have earthquakes, we have hurricanes, we have floods, we have famines, we have wars, we have fires, we have all the Middle East issues, we have crime, there is a rebellion today and lawlessness and nobody seems to have any kind of value for life and people go on and on with the laundry list of what we see in the headlines every day. And then they'll say, Pastor, on top of that, it seems like the influence of the church today is waning. People don't seem to be interested in the things of the Lord like I remember when I was growing up. Pastor, what am I to make of all of this? Now to that I would say as to the time of the coming of the Lord, we don't know. And I would remind you, Jesus said to his disciples... That when they see all of these things taking place, these are the beginning of birth pains. He didn't say the end of birth pains. He said the beginning. And the implication is that things will go on for some time. The things we witness in the world will go on for some time. And so we don't know. As for the church, we need to do what we've always done. The Great Commission is still the Great Commission. And I try to remind folks of these things. And I, and, and I also say regardless of what's happening in the world, you and I need to be found faithful. We're to be prayerful about headlines, but we are to be faithful. 
As Pastor Seeger said, we don't worry because we trust in the sovereignty of God. But we remain prayerful and we remain faithful. But I'm approached today more and more about these issues. And all week long I've had the Olivet Discourse on my mind. The Olivet Discourse is what we find in Matthew 24 and 25 and in the parallel passages in Mark's Gospel and Luke's Gospel. And the Olivet Discourse deals with both of these issues. Is the Lord's coming at hand and what am I to be doing? So stand with me for the reading of God's word, please. Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and he was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, 
so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day, an hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man." Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and, and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut.
Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Father, we humbly bow before you. We ask for your instruction, for the leadership of your spirit. And God, that you would give us ears to hear. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Michael Nicholson, in an article, It's the end of the world as we know it. The apocalypse in popular culture. Now that's the name of his article. What a name. It's the end of the world as we know it, the apocalypse in popular culture. In that article, he writes, and I quote, The end is near, and it's coming to a theater near you, or right into your own living room. As of this writing, over 250 end-of-the-world movies have been produced with more than 100 appearing since the year 2000. The number of apocalypse-themed movies from 2000 to 2009 doubled over the previous decade and will double again by the end of another decade. He goes on to ask, could it be that deep down we know that history has an appointed conclusion? Perhaps it is no accident, he says, that the recent increase in the number of such films has coincided with the rise of chaos in the world. Now, folks, as we look at Matthew 24, we see that the disciples had the very same curiosity. I want you to look back with me at the end of chapter 23. At the end of that chapter in verse 37, Jesus says, Old Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that leads right into the discussion that begins in chapter 24. The disciples point Jesus to the impressiveness of the temple. Or we can suppose at least that that must have been their thinking. When Jesus says, your temple, it's left to you desolate. They're saying, Lord, don't you you see how grandiose Herod's temple is? They might have been puzzled about how in the world something like this, being left desolate, is going to happen. And so they direct Jesus to take another look at the temple. And then Jesus makes the shocking comment that he does in verse 2. It says, He answered them, You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. 
And so once they cross the Kidron Valley and get over to the Mount of Olives, they want to know more about this. I suppose anybody would want to know more about this, especially the disciples in their shoes. Now folks, all of this is the context to the main, the main message this morning will be in verses 36 and following, okay? Verses 36 and following. But everything leading up to that sets the table. And we don't have time to go through it in, in, in great detail. That's not my purpose today. The last thing I want to do is get deep in the weeds. But there are some general things that you do need to understand about this chapter. If you don't understand the different views. And by the way, I don't know if I'm smart or crazy taking on a chapter like this. Because I know of at least three different positions that people hold in this church. And one of those positions has like three different nuances to it. And so it's a lot to take on. But if you don't understand the different views, you're going to be lost in the quagmire as you try to study this on your own. And so I want you to see the big picture of how the chapter is dealt with. And again, it's important because it's the context. And that's why I want to spend a little more time today before we get to verse 36, sort of leading up to that. Now, let me say before we do get to verse 36, there's a large amount of divergence in opinion that you can find on this chapter. As Dr. D.A. Carson writes, few chapters of the Bible have called forth more disagreement among interpreters than Matthew 24. So that lets you know something about the mess we're about to get into. It can be confusing if you're not acquainted with the basic views. You might be reading in one study Bible the notes and they're saying one thing and you, then you go grab another study Bible off the shelf and you read in that study Bible and the notes and they're saying something different and you're kind of like, what's going on here? And you give up in confusion. And so I, I at least want you to understand what's going on, okay? Look at their question in verse 3 that they ask him. Now, we can see... Two issues in this one question, right? We see multiple layers of it. But to the disciples, they probably associated all the multiple layers in their question as one question. They would have been thinking about all this together. They would have imagined all of these things happening together at once or at least in rapid succession. Whereas today we see the different nuances to it. Now when Jesus answers their question, how, the way he responds, he seems to address multiple issues. But again, depending on your interpretation. There's the destruction of the temple that will happen in 70 AD. And there's the end of the current age, which is still future to us. And interpretive issues revolve around this. 
And the difficulty then becomes what in this chapter applies to 70 A.D. and what in this chapter applies to the end of this current age. Now you may be wondering about the significance of 70 A.D. Why do I keep saying 70 A.D.? Well, in 70 A.D., the Roman army, led by Titus, came in, surrounded the city, went in and destroyed the city and the temple, and there was a massive, massive loss of life. Some people think maybe Josephus exaggerates a little bit, the the Jewish historian Josephus. He would put the loss of life... Somewhere around a million people, a million to 1.1 million. Because it would have been a time leading up to the Passover for and a lot of people had come into the city causing the population to swell. And so even greater loss of life. But anyway, Josephus writes about that event when Titus and the Roman armies came in. Uh, we know that some Jews, had, they ended up flee, fleeing to Masada. And they were likewise eventually destroyed. In fact, when the Romans surrounded Masada and built the sage ramp to go up and go in and get them. Uh, here again, word is, they all committed suicide. Except for a few women and children. You need to read Josephus to understand what a complete slaughter and loss of life 70 A.D. was. They had never seen anything like it. They'd never seen anything that bad. Even when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came in in Old Testament times and took control of the city. Even then was nothing like 70 A.D. In fact, in 70 A.D., the women were even boiling and roasting their infant children and eating them. That's how bad it got. So nothing in their history, I suppose, could even begin to compare to 70 A.D. The Romans completely destroyed the temple, just as Jesus said here. Not one stone was left on top of another. You go to Jerusalem today, and all that remains is that part that makes up the wailing wall where you see the Jews in the news going to the wall to pray. Now verses 3 to 44 are treated based on what you do with 70 A.D. Versus the end of this age. This age is the age that we are currently in. And we've been in this age the last days since the first advent of Christ. The age to come is when we experience the new heavens and the new earth and the redemption of the entire created order along with the people of God. And so again, verses 3 to 44 are treated based on what you do with 70 AD versus what you do with the end of this age. And there's major differences in how that's viewed and how it's handled. For example, dispensationalists, pre-trib who are pre-trib premillennialists, dispensational pre-trib premillennialism 
represented by some of the most popular pastoral figures in America, they would say, verses 36 to 40, it might help if you take out a pen and circle verses 36 to 40, just so you'll understand the grouping of these verses. They would say verses 36 to 40 refers to a secret rapture of the church that could take place at any time. Then go back to verses 4 to 28. They would say that that refers to the great tribulation after the secret rapture of the church. And the great tribulation that follows will last for seven years. And then look at verses 29 to 35. They would say this is a reference to the second coming of Christ. And so they put the second coming in two stages. First of all, there's a secret rapture of believers followed by seven years of tribulation on the earth and then at the end of that seven years Christ with the saints who were with him and the heavenly host come back with him again his coming in two stages it's the view that was written in the left behind series of books that was so popular a number of years ago it's the view that is enormously popular in the Bible Belt of the United States and among lay people. It became hugely popular in the early 20th century with the publication of the Schofield Study Bible with the notes that were in that study Bible. But it's not the view of the majority of biblical scholarship or of most schools. There's some wonderful schools that teach it. Dallas Theological Seminary, Master's Seminary, many others. But again, it's not the majority of view of most evangelical schools. And it's not the view of any of our six seminaries in Southern Baptist life. You might find a person on staff here or there who would endorse it, but not many. In fact, I talked to one of our conservative Greek and New Testament professors, and he said there is no one in our whole department who would endorse that view. And so while represented by some good schools and a number of very popular pastors, it's generally not the widespread view around the world. I want to be very respectful of the view though. I would assume it's the view of many people in the congregation this morning. It's the view that I used to uh, subscribe to. It's a very credible view. And so again, this position would say verses 4 to 28 refer to the great tribulation after the rapture of the church. Verses 29 to 35 refer to the second coming. Verses 36 to 40 refers to a secret rapture which could occur at any time. Now many others differ. Believing some of these verses apply to 70 AD and some to the end of this current age. The question again becomes what applies to what? That's the issue. Some, some scholars say everything down through verse 35 deals solely with the events leading up to 70 AD. Everything. 
unless you think that sounds odd, probably the main go-to scholar in the world today on Matthew's gospel, the gold standard of commentators on Matthew's gospel, would hold that view. Everything leading down to verse 35 deals with the events leading up to 70 A.D. Now, I don't subscribe to that either, but again, it's very well known. In this view, verses 29 to 31 even present no problem at all. Instead of being a reference to what sounds like a yet future event at the end of the age, it was actually in agreement with ancient Jewish apocalyptic material and also in agreement with Daniel 7 in reference to the heavenly bodies that will give off signs. And then they would say in these verses, the coming of the Son of Man. They would say what is pictured there is a heavenly witness with those in heaven above seeing the Son of Man approaching the Father on His throne and being given the kingdom. And they would even add that the word angels in verse 31 does not have to be heavenly creatures. The word can also refer to to earthly messengers like pastors and missionaries who go around the globe preaching the gospel. Others in that camp say verses 3 to 28 refers to the events leading up to AD 70. While verses 29 to 31 refers to the end of this age. Then verses 32 to 35 may again be pointing to events leading up to 70 A.D. And then verses 36 and following refer back once again to the end of the age. And how you interpret these verses determines what you're going to do with verse 34. Now I promise I'm going to get to the message in a minute. Again, I just want you to understand how people understand it. And depending on what camp you fall into determines what you do with verse 34. Where Jesus says this generation will not pass away until you see all these things happen. Can I also say something else? This is a matter not for Christians to get mad at one another about. This has always been considered an area of theology where within the orthodox position there, there's a range of possibilities because we're dealing with highly interpretive text. And so don't fight about this. This is the wrong fight. Those who take 3 to 35 as referring to 70 A.D. would say no problem with verse 34 because all of these things will happen in the lifetime of the disciples to whom Jesus was speaking at that moment. And so they will say the chapter dealing with the events leading up to 70 A.D. and those disciples being alive to witness it, that's the natural reading of the text. And that's the natural reading of who this generation is who will be alive. It's those that Jesus was talking to that day. Dispensationalists, on the other hand, will say generation means something else, such as the human race or Jews in particular. 
Jews who will not pass away until all these things happen. Or they will say what it refers to is the generation alive once these events begin to happen. In other words, once we have the rapture of the church and then the seven year tribulation begins, those who are alive to witness the beginning of these events won't pass away until they see the second coming of Christ. So I hope that understand, helps you understand a little bit of the background of verse 36 and following. Okay? That help? So verse 36 and following, the dispensationalist would say refers to the secret rapture of the church. Most others would say it refers to to the time of the second coming. That's the differences on these verses. But number one this morning. The end is unknown except to the Father alone. And everyday life will be happening as usual. Look at what he says there in verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Only the Father knows the time of the end. And life going to be going on as normal. Jesus highlights this by saying everybody's going to be doing what? They're going to be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. When Jesus returns, everybody is not going to be saying, Hey, the Lord's coming back this year. Hey, did you know He's coming back next month? I've got it all figured out. He's going to be coming back because this has happened and that's happening. So he's going to be coming back. No, instead Jesus says everybody is going to be consumed with the responsibilities and the pleasures of everyday life. Wedding plans will be taking place. Parents will be having babies. Houses will be being built. New businesses will be being started. Ball game tickets will be being purchased and so forth and so on. You see, people tend to think that they will know when the return of Christ is about to happen. But Christ says the opposite here. You won't know. Life will be normal largely just as it is now now Paul wants to alleviate the fears of some in in the church at Thessalonica that they had somehow or another missed the return of the Lord they were being told hey he's already come back you've missed it and so Paul speaks in 2 Thessalonians 2 of a rebellion that's going to be going on in the world increased lawlessness and a man of lawlessness arising and so he's wanting to assure the Thessalonians they've not missed the return of the Lord but generally speaking Christ says that most will not see anything coming life's going to be going on as normal and then he makes a statement here that even he doesn't know. The Bible points out that while the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are equal members of the Godhead, they have different roles. And in his incarnation, there were certain limitations on Christ 
while he was fully God because he was also fully man. He's the God-man. And in that relationship in the Godhead, certain things had been given to the Son to do. For instance, the Bible says in Colossians 1, the Son was actually the one who was the agent of creation. When you read in Genesis 1, God spoke and it was so. It was the Son who was the agent of creation. We know that the Holy Spirit, Jesus talks in John's Gospel about the Holy Spirit is the one who draws people to faith in Christ. He's the one who judges the world of, uh, of, of righteousness and, and, and he convicts the sinner of sin and draws that person to Christ. Also in Ephesians 1, we see the different roles. The Father predestines and chooses the elect. The Son redeems them and the Spirit seals them. And so different roles in the Godhead. And Jesus says here, it is the Father who knows the time of the end. So you think you know? Anybody here think you know? No, you don't. No one can predict when the end will be. And people have speculated for decades, I would say even centuries, about the end. Some of you probably got in your mailbox decades ago, uh, 88 reasons, a guy wrote a book, 88 reasons why Jesus is going to come back in 1988. I got that book, some of you probably did. Well, Jesus didn't come back. You think the guy would have learned his lesson. But what did he do? He went and wrote another book with another date he set. That's foolishness. Everyday life will be happening as usual. Second point I want you to see. The end will come suddenly. Verses 37 to 42. And what's the point there? Nobody's going to be expecting anything. It's going to be like in the days of Noah. Noah was building the ark for probably 120 years. And during that 120 years, everybody was living life as normal. And nobody had a clue what was about to happen. And they didn't believe the preaching of Noah. Because Peter says in 2 Peter that the whole time Noah's building that ark, he's being a preacher of righteousness. But they didn't believe him. What's this tell us? It's going to be at a time you don't expect. People are going to be shocked. People are going to be surprised. And so what's the lesson? Be ready. Just be ready. If you're ready, you're ready. If you're ready, it doesn't matter if you're taken by surprise or not. Why doesn't it matter? Because you're ready. What are lost people going to say? I thought I had more time. I thought I had more time. But it's going to be too late for them. There's going to be no hope for those who are not ready. That parable of the wedding in Matthew 25 I read. You have to understand the wedding culture back then. The focus was on the groom. Sorry, ladies, but it was. 
Today it's the opposite. You know, you might see a, a newspaper announcement of an engaged couple and the wedding date and, and it, then it might cover the wedding and say the bride was dressed in a beautiful white wedding gown made by so and so and she had flowers provided by so and so florist and the description will go on and on and on and the article might close by saying and the groom was present. <laughs> you gotta love it. And the groom was present. But in Jesus' day, it was the other way around. The focus was on the groom, who he was, who his family was, and so forth. And the groom would have this large celebration with his friends at his house. And depending on his family's wealth, the celebration might last a day, or it might go on for an entire week. And then the bride, likewise, at her home with her friends would have a celebration. And finally there would be runners that would go from the grooms to the brides announcing that the groom was ready. And there would be a procession of lit torches through the street to the bride uh, as the bride's party walked to the grooms. They would enter the grooms and the door would be shut. And then there would be a joint celebration between the bride's party and the groom's party and the wedding ceremony. Notice that the door was shut. It was too late for the five foolish virgins. And it's not that they didn't gain entry because they got drowsy and fell asleep. All ten were guilty of that. But the five foolish virgins had failed to make the appropriate advanced planning. No matter how badly they wanted in, it was still too late. And sadly, that will be the state of most people in that day because Jesus said, in that day that he comes, because Jesus said the road to destruction is wide and there are many people who travel that road. Just imagine being in that group, folks, and thinking, oh my goodness, my parents were right. My preacher was right. I put it off. I thought they were crazy talking to me about the urgency of it. And now it's too late. And Revelation 20 tells what's, what's going to be next for those people. Revelation 20 at the great white throne talks about the lake of fire. The lake of fire. Folks, I'm not trying to scare anybody, although you know that wouldn't be necessarily bad, would it? I mean, Jude says save some out of fear. I guess it'd be better to be scared into belief than to go complacently along in unbelief. But the real thing to communicate here is simply be ready. Because once he comes, there is no time to get ready. It's going to be instantaneous. It's going to be a surprise for many, many people. And it's going to be sooner perhaps than you think. It might be later than something. It might be sooner than others think. But once it happens, there's no changing anything. Eternal destinies are set forever and so again just be ready
Third thing I want you to see. Aim to not only be ready, but to be wise. Verse 45, 45 following says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. What's involved in wisdom related to this? So what Jesus does to explain that, he paints the picture of a household. We're probably intended to see a large household. Think of a large farm or a ranch with lots of workers and lots of help. No doubt what Christ has in mind here is his family, the church. And so we have God's household and the wise and faithful are those who are part of God's household and they are serving. Notice what they're doing. They're taking care of of the master's business. And what's Jesus say? Blessed is the one in whom he finds so doing. We could liken his words here to the second parable in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. Where one guy was given five, one guy given two, one guy given one. The one with five, the one with two, both of them were responsible. They were about the master's business. And they heard, well done, good and faithful servant, when the master returned. And the other one, who was not responsible, heard, you're a wicked servant. Cast him into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what's the lesson so far, Ben? Just be ready. Be alert. Be ready. What's the lesson here? Be found so doing. Serving. Faithful service, in other words, reflects something, doesn't it? It reflects authenticity in your Christian walk. You see, folks, this is where we have the wrong standard today. And it is a standard the New Testament never uses. Please hear me over the next few minutes. We say something like, I raised my hand in VBS when I was nine years old. I'm saved. And make no mistake about it, that person may be saved. When they raise their hand, pray to sinner's prayer... There might have been a heavenly exchange took place. They might have been converted in their soul. That's, that's what we hope. But that's the standard that we use. But they also may not be saved. They could have raised their hand, filled out a card, went down front, talked to the preacher, done all the right things, and never been converted. The New Testament standard is, have I continued in the faith and do I bear fruit? Jesus said in John 15, go and bear fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Yes, I may have started this journey when I was nine years old. But the way I have continued in the faith and what my life has been about shows whether what I did back then when I was nine was real or not. By contrast, the one who has not continued 
might pull out his VBS card, but he doesn't have any kind of lifestyle. He doesn't have any kind of faithfulness or fruitfulness in his life. In fact, he may have lived like, a de- like the devil his whole entire life. He may have had some kind of religious experience back then when he was nine, but apparently it was not a true saving experience. A true experience will show itself in life. We follow Christ. We continue. We bear fruit. You see, we've created this standard where all you do is look back to a day. And again, since then, you might have not followed through with any of that. But we say, oh, Johnny, you were saved. You raised your hand. You walked an aisle. You prayed with the pastor. You're safe. But the New Testament standard is, were you converted? Are you following Christ? Have you continued? And does your life bear that out? The two parables in chapter 25 even show that the characters or the character in question might have been among or in the presence of true disciples. They considered themselves one and they fully expected to go in with the master to the celebration. But they didn't. And it's not that you and I can't know. That we can't know the difference. The New Testament says we can know the difference. Jesus said you'll know them by their fruit. Have they continued in their faith? Have they borne fruit? 2 Peter 1, Peter says be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. John says in 1 John, there's test of authenticity. First of all, do you believe what the New Testament says about Jesus? Yes or no? But does your life show it? A life change where you're a new creation in Christ. You love the commands of God. You love the word of God. You love the things of God. Is that present in your life? Or do you love the world and the things in the world? Do you love the body of Christ? Or do you not have any use for the body of Christ? Test of authenticity. You know, I think there's going to be something absolutely wonderful about something as bad and horrible and unwanted as COVID and all this stuff we have going on in the world today. Now, I want you to hear me out, okay? Don't misunderstand. I I am not talking to those who are cautious and concerned they take precautions they even make some changes a certain while about certain settings but the whole time they're continuing in the things of the Lord you know in in fact Jesus says here there are times in life maybe where the wise and the prudent thing to do is to flee to the hills but I'm concerned about those that we're being told by church experts Who have, with all that's going on in the world and this pandemic, they've disappeared from the church and we we will never see them involved again in any church, in any active Christian movement. They're gone, never to return. And some of the statistics being shown out there, you would not believe how high some of those statistics are. 
And it's not that church activity saves, only Christ saves. But again, true believers are characterized by what? Continuing in the things of the Lord. Being faithful over the Lord's work in His house. What this whole section of Matthew shows is that we can't know certain things. There are matters today totally out of our control. But we can be ready. And we can be found faithful. And by being ready and being found faithful with everything pertaining to the Lord's work, that is a mark of following Christ authentically. Bad world conditions, pandemics, complacency, terrorism, etc., etc., do not change the demand to be found faithful. None of this changes the demand that is on us as the bride of Christ to go and bear fruit. And it doesn't change the fact at all that you've been given at least one spiritual gift to build up the bride of Christ with. Every true believer has at least one spiritual gift to be used in a corporate sense for the building up of the bride of Christ. And nothing we see going on in the world today likewise changes any of the hard sayings of the Bible. Jesus said we must hate father and mother and husband and wife and child and even your own life. You must pick up your cross and follow me. If you save your own life, you'll lose it. But if you lose it for my sake, you'll save it. And all of those hard sayings were given to disciples in the midst of hardship. Those hard sayings were not spoken in the midst of warmth and comfort. Nothing changes the call that you and I have upon our lives. Now with what's going on in the world, I'm I'm excited to see maybe some new creativity about how we're going to do some of these things now in a new context. Sort of new context may breed some new creativity. But some things are not an option for a believer. There's probably 40 one another's in the scripture. Meeting together, praying together, teaching one another, admonishing one another, encouraging one another, going out together, ministering to one another. There's about 40 one another's in the scripture. And beloved, we've got to still do those. Amen? The one another's. We've got to remember what the church has always done, even in times of war, in times of depressions, in times of pandemics, even without some of the modern technology and precautions that we have. You know what the church has always done down through its 2,000-year history? The church has always jumped right into the middle of the fire to bring the hope of Christ to a lost and a dying world. That's what the church has always done. The Great Commission is still there. And we've got an awesome God to serve and worship. 
There's still little babies in rooms and little children and teenagers and adults that we're called to care for and teach. There are still people who get sick. There are still people who suffer losses. There are still people who have benevolent needs. There are still people who need to be evangelized and won to the Lord. There's still mission work to be done. There's discipling to be done. There's a world out there and that world is our mission field. Nothing in that regard has changed. Nothing. The world is seeing something today it has never seen before to the best of my knowledge. And it's concerning. In the past, in the past, in difficult and dark days, even in deadly days, the world witnessed the church getting right in the middle of everything and being the salt and the light of the world. And oftentimes unbelievers would stand back and they would marvel at how Christians would get involved and do things and unbelievers were drawn to Christ. Today in 2021, thankfully, Christians for the most part are still doing that. And I think you, for the most part, are still doing that. But many believers in many churches are not. Instead of getting involved in the middle of the mess out of the world, the darkness in the world, you know what they're doing? They're shutting down and going home and saying, we're done. What's going to be our legacy? What's going to be your legacy? Remember what Jesus says here. Blessed is the one when he comes back. Whom he finds so doing when he returns. Would you bow with me please? Are you ready? Be ready by turning to Christ, calling out to Him and Him alone to save you. Is there anybody I'm speaking to that is still putting that off and you're thinking you got time? You may, but you may not. I mean, aside from the Lord's return and not knowing that, you don't even know what your life will hold over the next 24 hours. Are you ready? Get ready. And be alert, watching and waiting and living in expectancy and holiness. And be ready by being a part of his bride, being a faithful servant who's giving his household their food at the proper time. Be ready by being found faithful. And faithfully using your gifts to serve the local church. Christianity is not a private affair. There's, it, there's a corporate dimension to serving the body of Christ. You and I are called upon to execute all of the one another's in Scripture. Is that what your life is about? Speak to us, Lord.